the Alien Chronicles. I want to sit in my mom's lap right now. It's what makes us different. I went on every single door until someone told me yes. Well, I'd have to have at least one book. Every human has like a similar core. Get out there and meet as many people as I can. Today, I'm honored and excited to have Daisy Khan on our show. She's one of the most prominent female Muslim leaders in the United States, someone that I look up to. She's the executive director of the Women's Islamic Initiative. She not only empowers Muslim women around the globe, but she also works to help non-Muslims have a better understanding of the true teachings of Islam. Guided by her faith, she has embraced her role as women's rights advocate and continues to work on a number of important issues like ending child marriage, fighting against genital mutilation, and most recently, educating young Muslims to resist ISIS recruitment. We will talk to Daisy Khan about her personal journey to America and her perspective as a modern religious scholar in America. I'm your host, Sadia Khan, and you're listening to The Alien Chronicles, which starts now. Welcome to our show, Daisy. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. So I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. We'll talk religion, we'll talk politics. But before that, I want to talk about where it all started. So when you came to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So you came to U.S. in the 70s as a high school student and you came to Long Island. Now, Long Island is a very racially segregated city. What was your experience initially? How did you assimilate? And what were some of the challenges you faced? So before I even go there, it's important to understand the context of what I'm saying. So I was born in Kashmir in India. And I was born in a Muslim household. But I was sent to Catholic school. My professors were Hindu. I climbed, you know, mountains and trees with Sikh girls. Bought freshwater pearls from the Buddhists. And we were always told that we were from the lost 10 tribe of Israel. So at the age of 15... Ironically, I landed in a 100% Jewish neighborhood, (laughs) and it was called Jericho. And then I wound up in Jericho High School, which was almost 99% Jewish. I was the solo Muslim, the solo immigrant, the solo brown person, and it was a lonely journey. And, you know, I realized very quickly that I had to integrate into the school because I, back home where I came from, I was a hockey player, I was a popular girl, and I didn't like the fact that I was a misfit and didn't fit in. So I began to think about what kind of strategies I could do. So what did you do then? So I looked around and I noticed that there was a field hockey team that was playing and they were a dismal team. They didn't know how to score a single goal. <laughs> and I was a forward, center forward back home. And I knew how to pick up a hockey stick. So I walked up to the gym teacher and I said, can I play? And she said, do you know how to take the stick? And I said, yes, I do. She said, okay. And I took the stick and I started scoring goal after goal after goal. And I took that dismal team from nothing to winning the championship. And I was hoisted on people's shoulders. And overnight, I was like a hero and a success. And I realized that the fastest way to integrate into American social life, especially in high school, is through sports. What were some of the traditions that you brought along from Kashmir that you carry on today? So it's not so much a tradition, but it's an outlook. Mm. The outlook was because I grew up in a highly multicultural, multi-religious environment, you know, where we celebrated 
Diwali, Holy Eid. Here, you know, we knew who Hindus were, who Sikhs were, who Buddhists were. We had heard about the Jews. We integrated with the Christians. And that was my worldview. I thought, you know, that's what harmony looked like. All religions coexisting with one another, celebrating one another, and honoring and respecting one another. And that outlook has not only that has been my worldview, but it's also an outlook that I carry today that I'm trying to recreate, Mm -hmm. especially when I see conflict all over, you know, religious conflicts arising. I immediately step in and say, no, that's not the natural way. The natural way is harmony between religions and respect. Did you have any exposure to American culture growing up in Kashmir? Yes. Well, my grandfather had come to America mm-hmm. and uh, many years before to study, in, and then he had returned back. And so he would always regale us with these wonderful stories about America and the things that he saw and what he valued about America. And my father had come to America to study here, transportation, and he had also come back. And he had come back with LPs of the Beatles and <laughs> Peter Frampton and all these, all this, you know, Santana. And so we had glimpses of American culture in our home growing up. So we had experienced some of that. So we wore bell bottoms. We listened to LPs of pop music. But yet we lived a very traditional life. How different was America when you came here and you saw it in person versus what you had envisioned in Kashmir growing up and hearing stories from your father and your grandfather? When I came to America, I thought that I was going to immediately be welcomed by the Beatles and pop culture. And and I also thought that I was going to, you know, be surrounded by Christians. And when I landed in a Jewish neighborhood, I was looking for the Christmas tree and the Christmas carols at at Christmas time because, you know, we were accustomed to singing Christmas carols for the nuns back home because they didn't have any children. So we were there and their children that celebrated the holidays with them. And I was looking for a place to go sing Christmas carols and there were no Christmas trees anywhere. Mm. And so that was a culture shock to me because I thought primarily that maybe America was almost all Christian. And I didn't realize that. And then I realized, no, there are actually different people that live in America. You know, that it is a a melting pot, a hodgepodge of of things. And as I, you know, stepped out of Jericho and went into Manhattan, I discovered there was a whole new world. There was a different America that I hadn't seen yet. So in what ways did that help you assimilate easily into American society and culture, knowing that America is not just Christian or it's not just one religion or one ethnic group? How did it facilitate your assimilation into the society? So it was more natural to me because I had grown up with a highly multi-religious environment. So when I came to America, what was interesting about America was not only different religions, it was also different ethnicities and different nationalities which I hadn't experienced before. So my world, which which I thought was, you know, all religions, but still everybody was an Indian or everybody was a Kashmiri. You know, we mm-hmm. all were ethnically the same. But I came to America and all of a sudden I'm meeting the Germans, I'm meeting the Irish, I'm meeting the Polish, I'm meeting all these people that are like mixes of different nationalities and different races. And I began to meet people. And I remember a friend of mine, she said, what are you? I said, I'm a Kashmiri. I said, what are you? She goes, well, I'm part Welsh and part German and part this. And I didn't understand that. How can you Mm. be so many parts? Mm. And then I realized America truly is a melting pot of different people who have emigrated here 
over centuries and have intermarried, and you have this very interesting mix of people that represent various cultures and they coexist with one another. Like having lived in the U.S. your adult life, in what ways has discovery that you went through in terms of America being this melting pot or a place where you see so many ethnic and culturally diverse individuals. How did that evolve your personality and your values from the values that you grew up with in Kashmir? Yeah, so it expanded me as a mm. human being. You know, America really has expanded me beyond own grasp. I never thought I would be, I would have such a wide worldview. But having seen what I have seen in America, the growth, the various things that America has been able to absorb within it, I'm also absorbing. Mm. It's interesting because America absorbs all this and mm. still America still stays America. You know, we have this ability to take on new groups, absorb them, they assimilate, then they move on to the next group and another group comes and absorbs. And so my identity has also expanded so much from where I started out. So first, I was simply a Kashmiri. That's all I thought of as myself because I lived in a little village that was surrounded by mountains, by the Himalayas. And then I stepped out of there and I came to America and I was carrying an Indian passport. And then people asked me where I was from. I said, Kashmir. They didn't know what that was. They said, where are you really from? I said, oh, I'm from India. So all of a sudden I became an Indian. And then I started moving around with people from Bangladesh and other places. And then the Census Bureau came along and they wanted me to take off where I was from. There was no place for me to take off because I was not white. I was, they didn't, there were no slot for Kashmiri. There was no slot for Indian. But I became a Pacific Islander because that's all I could check off. Yeah. But I knew that I was South Asian because I was moving around with people of different ethnicities. So I became South Asian. Then I moved to Manhattan. And all of a sudden, I was all of those things. But really, primarily, I was a New Yorker because New Yorker is its own sort of a breed of people. We think in a certain way. We have a certain attitude. Mm -hmm. I developed that attitude. I became a New Yorker. Then I took the oath to become an American. And I willingly chose this country. I adopted it. I accepted it. I embraced it. I took the oath and I became an American. And then married, then 9-11 happened, and overnight I was seen as a Muslim woman. So I became a Muslim woman because now people were looking at me. I'm a Muslim woman, and then eventually I wound up doing a lot of work, and I became a Muslim woman leader. So I have, and all this time I was an architectural designer, so I have so many uh, layers of identities to me and none of them are in conflict with one another you know uh, I was going to ask you about your career and you brought it up so it's it's interesting because you started as and like you you studied architectural design mm -hmm. and you were a career woman and that's obviously part of your identity as well on top of all the other identities and layers of identities that you've mentioned but then you transitioned into a religious scholar and you started exploring Sufism what led you to that path? Like, what led you onto that particular path to explore your religion? So I think that there are moments in history that happen that are external, that mm. then, you know, you get confronted with external issues that impact your own personal identity. It's happening to a lot of people right now. So many listeners who are listening 
are probably impacted by what's happening externally, whether it's gun violence or whether it's the politics or whether it's that polarization. And it affects us as human beings because we're trying to process this and we don't know how to process this. So for me, the very first external issue that confronted me head on was the Iranian revolution. Now, some of your listeners are probably too young to remember, but it exploded. It exploded because there were these images of hostages that Iranians were taking and they were Muslim. So they were my people. They were not, I was not Iranian, but they shared my religion. And so I was conflicted with that because I had never seen negative images around my religion. And I had never seen women with black chadars, and I had never seen fisted people, you know, chanting death to America. I didn't understand that. I was so young and I was like running around trying to get help. No one there to help me. Then right immediately after that, if that wasn't bad enough, you know, I was confronted with the Salman Rushdie writing a book. And he shared my heritage. He was from Kashmir, although he was British. And then he was an author that I was, whose writings I used to read his books. And he wrote this book that was deemed so offensive that the book was banned. And then that created an internal conflict with me because I had become fairly American at that point. And I valued freedom of expression. And I valued books because in our home, we also valued books. And I didn't understand why people should burden books, but it created an internal conflict because he had insulted my prophet. And we don't insult prophets. We don't insult any prophet. We revere them. And so that internal conflict led me to wonder whether I could actually accommodate Islam within me. And I, or I should just walk away from it. So the easier thing was to just walk away from it. So I was having a full-blown spiritual crisis. And that spiritual crisis lasted what I call my dark days when I was kind of in an abyss. I didn't know who I was. But having a career helped me because I was, I plunged myself into my career. I worked long hours. I was, I excelled in my career, but there was something missing. And that missing, that dark hole or that black hole inside of me is what precipitated my spiritual journey eventually to try and find my true self. That's so interesting. And you mentioned 9-11 and how your identity changed. It took additional layer of being a Muslim woman and that's how you were identified. So after 9-11, were you doing any interfaith work before that? How were you working on your faith or working across different faiths? And how did post 9-11 that work change or evolve? So while I was going through my spiritual journey, I had begun a small a group, a Quran study group within my apartment because many people now had had friends who were also trying to figure themselves out. And so we would just read the Quran by ourselves and we would try to make sense of it. And there was no learned scholar in the room. It was basically the blind leading the blind. But we were having great fun with it because no one was really judging us. You know, we were all trying to figure it out ourselves. And that made me realize how important it was to really understand the truth and how knowledge could free us. Because once we did our research and we were able to now speak more effectively and more accurately about, about what we were hearing, that I think precipitated some sort of a desire in me to learn more. Hmm. Eventually that led me to the path of you know, reaching out and doing interfaith work um, whatever I could do within within my own limited power. And I did work in the World Trade Center Towers while I was an architectural designer for a good three years. And I used to be on the top of the world, literally in the clouds. Mm -hmm. I was on the 106th floor, a 
World Trade Center towers before 9-11. And at that time, my spirituality was, was at arm's length. I didn't really think about my spirituality. But 9-11 changed that. Because at that point, I had been married to an imam, and I was trying to help him do his outreach because the world really needed somebody to explain to the general public who were, who were in fear and books on Islam were flying through the shelves and everybody wanted to know and understand. And then, you know, there's always these moments that happen in your life that is the crucible, you know, that, that defines who you really are and defines your path. And that happened to me when I accidentally double-booked my husband in a synagogue and a church. And then I was asked by him to go to the church because we didn't want to disappoint either. So mm. I walked into this little little church in Princeton, New Jersey, and really afraid and not confident and not knowing what I was going to say. And eventually, you know, I started delivering my speech, and I started speaking, and this little old lady asked me these profound questions about Islam, the same frequently asked questions that I had heard before, and she asked me the question about Muslim women. And I was ready with all my answers. I said, you know, Muslim women have received rights in 7th century, uh, and we have the right to divorce, we have the right to inheritance, we have the right to, you know, we are uh, accountable to God, uh, you know, we we can hold property, we can accumulate wealth, and all this, all these wonderful things. And then she said, I believe you, dear, but just tell me why these women in Afghanistan are, why they are being treated the way they are being treated. And I was angry at my inability to do anything about that. And so I froze in front of her. And then she said to me, never mind you, just tell me what you're doing about it. Mm-hmm. And that question stayed with me for a while. And then I realized I was living in the most, I was empowered by everybody in my family, men, women, I, I was living in the most powerful country in the world. I Then, if not me, then who? Who was going to step up? And that's when I realized that, that a mandate was being thrust upon me. And I eventually wound up quitting my corporate career and dedicating myself to community development because there was the need of the hour was I needed to step up. I needed to do what I needed to do for my community and I was also equipped from my childhood to do into work. You know, I was a natural ambassador between religions. It, it was quite natural to me to reach out to people of other religions. I knew how to do it. And that's what I did. Growing up, as, as you've mentioned, you grew up in a very liberal household. You were religious, but then obviously women were treated a certain way. They were like, they were basically, it was more matriarchal. That was the household that you grew up in. And then you came here, and as you pointed out, somebody asking you about why women are treated a certain way in Islam. And that is a misconception um, that that people have in the in West and in other places as well. Do you think Islam and feminism can go together? Can they coexist? And in what ways? I think that women have always been co-stewards in every faith community and women's usually get written out of the history books. And so it's not the fault of God, you know? <laughs> so, so, and it's not the fault of any religion. It's the way men have written women out of the history books. And this is something, this is true of almost all religions, you know, the role that women have played in religions. So, uh, I mean, Jesus didn't come without Mary, 
Hmm. I mean, she was given a very prominent role in, in Christianity to carry the Spirit of God into hmm. this life. And similarly, in Islam, the very first, if you go all the way back to even prior to Islam, you have Hagar. The, you know, the, the slave woman who bore Ishmael, who's, you know, where our lineage comes from, where our religious lineage comes from, Isaac's brother. Mm. And it was Hagar's sacrifice who stayed behind in a desolate valley. Mm. And she asked Abraham, she said, you know, has your Lord told you to do this? And he said, yes. Then she said, then God will take care of us. He'll provide. Mm. And she stayed behind with a little child mm. in a desolate valley. Who does that? Mm. And can you imagine the sacrifice this woman made? How courageous it is for her to stay behind with a little baby. And then God saw her desperation and when she was trying to feed her child, she was running back and forth. And an angel came down. Angel Gabriel struck the ground. Water came gushing and Mecca and Medina today is there because of a sacrifice of a woman. Now, most people do not recognize this, do not see this. Do, you know, they don't, they don't understand uh, what the prophet's wife, Khadija, did for the prophet mm. when he became a prophet. She was a noble woman. She had been married to him before. And then he became a prophet, and she was the one who took his prophecy really seriously. She took all her wealth and made it available for his disposal, for, his prof- for, for, for him to spread his message. She was there behind him, supporting him the whole time. When he needed the support. Mm. And these are the kinds of things that women have done. And they are stories in the Quran. Mm. All these stories exist in the Quran. And including when oftentimes you'll hear Muslim men say women shouldn't be leaders, you know. Yeah. Well, guess what? The Quran talks about the Queen of Sheba being the archetype of leadership mm. and compares the Queen of Sheba to the Pharaoh as a destructive leader as an egotistical, maniacal leader who led his people into, drowned his people into the sea and lauds her leadership as being an exemplary leader. This is the Quran. This is God talking. Mm. But yet, somehow people have convinced each other that women shouldn't be leaders. And so, yes, if you want to use a definition of feminism to say Islam and feminism is completely... A co- co- yeah, I believe that women and men are created equally. This is what the Quran says, that we are co-stewards of one another. We are partners of one another. One has not been created over the other. We just have different roles. And because we are you know, biologically different, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we are accountable in the same way. And so I fundamentally believe that uh, we need to go back to that tradition to restore the balance. Mm-hmm. Because without that, this is why we are in such a pain right now. It's because we have steered away from the core teachings of our faith, which values, you know, women and men equally. You recently wrote a book and it's called Born With Wings. And it's, I've read it, part of it though. And it's, it's a great book. It's, it's a journey about a modern Muslim woman. That's you. And in that book, you talk about your grandfather as one of the biggest influences in your life. And as you mentioned, your grandfather came to U.S., he studied here, and he said something, and and I quote this from your book, that your grandfather said that Islam could be practiced in its purest form in America. Mm -hmm. What do you think he meant by that? And do you think it's true in today's America? You know, when he came to America, he went to Harvard. And, and he studied at Harvard, so he received the best of education. 
but he was he was also asked by his professor to give a lecture on Islam and he was petrified he didn't know what Islam was because he had just been taught Islam in a very sort of you know in a family way like you know just practice the essential things of Islam like fasting and prayer but you know he had he had not studied it and then his professor said to him that hey uh, you know if you do this I'll put in I'll, I'll throw in a sweetener I'll give you a $20 stipend $20 stipend <laughs> in those days in 1930s was a lot of money he went into the Harvard library and he actually studied Islam and he found a treasure trove of books and that's where his passion for Islam grew because there were so many wonderful books that he was able to read. And when he came back, that passion lived on with him and he actually wrote books about Islam and he translated the Quran and he wrote little, little booklets for all of us, for his entire family. When he came back, he told us in America, he saw justice, the rule of law. He was a just man. He was always a man of justice. He really believed in right and wrong. He saw in America, the verse of the Quran kind of exemplified, like we have created you into nations and tribes so you may get to know one another. So he did see the diversity mm-hmm. in America as well because when he went to Harvard, he saw different people there. He saw black people there. He saw people from different different ethnicities, from different nationalities coexisting. He saw the, the, the fundamental religious freedom that people had to practice their religions, different people, different religions coexisting. And he saw the kindness of his own neighbor who he had cut his foot and his neighbor, you know, uh, along with the daughter were cleaning his feet every single day. And then he discovered that this was a Jewish person. He had never met a Jewish person Mm -hmm. in his entire life. And he saw the kindness of people. He loved the punctuality of Americans he said, you know, we should never waste time. He loved the cleanliness. Mm-hmm. Like, don't throw garbage outside, clean it, <laughs> pick it up. So these are all the things that he came back with. And he said, I'm going to make Kashmir like that. He was also a chief engineer. So he wrote a book called Kashmiri Muslim. And he put all these things mm-hmm. in there, you know, that these are the values of Islam that are being lived in America. And why can't we Muslims live up to our ideals? Obviously, there's a lot of Islamophobia now in in the U.S. What are your views on situation with Muslims in current political climate in America? Do you think the the treatment of Muslims has gotten better or worse post since 9/11? So after 9/11, you know, we had a president who made a deliberate effort to let the public know that Muslims shouldn't be singled out for the actions of a few, and this was George Bush. And he was a Republican, and he made that very clear that we should distinguish between terrorists and the religion of uh, Islam and Muslims who were law-abiding citizens in America. And that was then. And we thought that was a very difficult time post 9-11. But we never expected that a day would come where we would not only, our religion would not be continually linked with terrorism, but that, you know, we would see certain kinds of policies getting reinforced and certain kinds of, like, hate crimes on the rise. And I never expected to see this. I thought things were going to get gradually better. But I think that because of the deep polarization that we're seeing in our nation, it's affecting every minority group. So minorities in general are being singled out as if we somehow are responsible for the things that are going on in America or things that are not going on, uh, going right in America. So because we're different, because we're newcomers, 
we are being accused and we're being singled out. But that, by the way, is the story of America. This has been going on ever since from the very beginning. And so every newcomer is being singled out, is being tested, is being hazed, is being pushed around, knocked around, until we integrate enough, and there are enough of us in enough numbers, and one of our people become famous, or you know we integrate enough into society, and we have a couple of generations here, and then we are considered to be normative in this country. So this happened to Catholics. Mm-hmm when they were seen as outsiders. It's hard to imagine that it would be Catholics, but they were seen as outsiders at one time. This happened to Jews as well. And we are seeing a resurgence of you know, anti-Semitism in this country and hate crimes against Jews, which they were experiencing 80, 90 years ago. But they also integrated themselves. They have put certain institutions in place. But in spite of that, they are experiencing that. So we Muslims are also going through that. And it's important to recognize that this is not going to last. But we are living history right now. And we're in that moment where we're experiencing the hardship and where we're experiencing the difficulties. But I believe that ultimately, ultimately, America's core identity will prevail, which is, you know, the, the challenge of acceptance is something that everybody experiences in America. But eventually we prevail back to our original self, which is accepting everybody as equals. How has your interfaith work evolved because of what's happening currently uh, in America, politically speaking? I have, like, what, what kind of tools are you using? What kind of alliances have you formed to present counter-narratives or to bring different minorities together? As you said, like, Jews are being targeted right now. Other minorities are. So can you give us an example of how your interfaith work has evolved in that context? Yeah. So interfaith work in general has evolved quite a bit. So mm-hmm. in my own work, it started with just building friendships with people that we didn't know. And then it evolved to try to understand one another or to try to get rid of the misconceptions we have of one another or the stereotypes we have, which means doing more of a deep dive in, into the common misconceptions that we have, like studying one another's text, getting to know one another. And then it went into kind of celebrating one another. You know, once we've established friendships and trust, we celebrate one another. So we've had these theatrical productions that we've done, the Bread Fest. We've done theatrical production called Same Difference, where, where we do these things, so, you know, where we celebrate one another. But now, once those relationships have been established, hmm. now is the time for collaboration, to deliberately collaborate with one another on issues that are of common concern to us. Most of us who have been involved in interfaith disagree that any one group should be singled out for the actions of a few. We all agree that that's not right. That's un-American. And so people have basically stepped forward to defend one another. You know, So we come to the aid of one another. When one group is singled out, we go out there, we do vigils, we stand there, we, we put up placards and say, today I'm a Sikh too, or mm-hmm. today I'm a Muslim too. And so, so those kinds of efforts are going on where we have each other's back where we're defending one another. And it's very important to do that because when a group is being isolated and, you know, being attacked, it's important that they know that they have friends, that they have allies that they can rely on. So that's a very good development. Now, in my case, the more important development is that we have partnered with the Jewish community. Muslims and Jews have come together and we have created a special group called Jewish Muslim Advisory Council. Mm -hmm. That council is actually going and pushing for legislation Mm. 
on special legislation where hate crimes are being addressed in a specific way. And this legislation has been recently passed and it deals with not only the hate crimes, but also when religious institutions are being attacked. Mm-hmm. So there is now being federal you know, legislation passed already. But that was an effort of us coming together, mm-hmm. creating this council and jointly going to members of Congress and saying, we need to pass this. And it just recently passed. So this is the level, but this interfaith, we wouldn't have been able to do this had we not laid the foundation for building friendships, creating trust, getting to know one another. And so I think that this kind of stuff is now going to continue because all of us, in some way or the other, are being attacked. So I see probably down the road there's going to be some kind of a Latino-Muslim alliance Mm -hmm. as well because Mexicans and Muslims are thrown into the same bucket. Mm -hmm. I see more and more, you know, African-Americans and Muslims coming together. Those efforts are already going on, black lives. And, you know, so I think that all minority groups know that they're being singled out. It doesn't matter how big the minority group is because the African-American is not a small group. It's a very large group, but it's still seen as, 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 as an outsider. And that's such a great point, because when minority groups or anyone for that matter, when when individuals come together, it's much easier to debunk some of the myths or misconceptions, address them effectively. Talking about misconceptions, Islam has like there are a lot of misconceptions about Islam. And since you are a religious scholar, we have to ask you a few questions that are very specific to Islam and and misconceptions that exist. What are some of the misconceptions about Islam that you think are pretty prevalent in American society right now? And in what ways can Muslims, majority of Muslims, because there are obviously we are blamed at times for actions of very few crazies, Mm -hmm. can present counter narratives against those misconceptions? What would you say to people who think Islam, for instance, is a violent religion? So let me first tell you about the misconceptions. So we have about seven common misconceptions Mm -hmm. that that I've heard about. I will speak about this book that I've done in which I list those seven, but I'm just going to read it to you. Not all Muslims are terrorists, but all terrorists are Muslim. That's one common misconception. Two, Muslims are not patriotic. Three, Muslims hate America. Four, Muslim refugees are coming to America to attack us in the name of Islam. Five, Muslim terrorists are infiltrating our borders. Six, Muslims are responsible for most acts of terrorism in the U.S. And seven, Muslims aren't doing anything to prevent terrorism from happening. So these are the common. In addition to that, there are others like Muslims don't treat their women well or they treat them as second-class citizen, and that's in in addition to, to these. But... The only way to counter these is to actually show the truth. Mm-hmm. Is this really true? So in our, in our book that I've done, done, which is called Wise Up, we've actually have these, these questions at the top and we have a brief answer underneath each of these so that the public knows. For instance, the common question, why don't Muslims speak out against terrorism, mm-hmm. right? So this is the question I still get wherever mm-hmm. I go doesn't matter, you know. It's primarily, even though Muslims condemn these acts and have been condemning, the press doesn't cover them. Mm. So the general public is not wrong in the sense that they perceive that. It's just they've not been informed. So how are they supposed to know what it is? And so what we did was we researched 1,400 condemnations that we have, and we listed them, and we have an Excel spreadsheet for anybody who wants them. Happy to send it to them. 
and we have it in the book as to you know where we got this information from, so that people can see for themselves. Yeah, Muslims have been condemning, and these big scholars and countries have been condemning. It's just not getting press coverage. So, wise up by, for our listeners. It's a great book for those who are curious about Islam, who have misconceptions about Islam, or who just want to simply like learn more about what's what's going on with Muslims or Islam. Daisy, where can we find this book? And if if somebody were to order it, how would they do that? Is it available on Amazon? Where do they go? So they will have to order from our website, mm-hmm. which is wisemuslimwomen.org, mm-hmm. or they can just go wiseupreport.org. But the easiest way to do it is to go to our organization's website, www.wisemuslimwomen.org, and just you know enter the site, and you will go into books, and the book there will be Wise Up Book, and click, and they they can place an order there. Uh, the book is thirty five dollars, including shipping. And the book will be sent right away. That's great. So, if you were to describe America in one word, what would that be? Freedom. Nice. If you could change one thing about America, what would that be? Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's so Let's interesting. Let's keep it free. Yeah. Let's keep it free. Let's not constrain it. I think that once we constrain America, once we polarize America, once people don't feel free. Of fear and you know free. This is the this is the one country where freedom is valued and it's something that we cherish. We can be free to say anything, free to do anything, free to be anything. This is the genius of America, and I think that once you take that away from America, you know you should be free to go to school and not fear your life. That's what I mean. So we have to understand what that freedom means and how to save it. And keep it safeguarded. It's an essential component of what America is. But some people confuse freedom with, or lack of freedom with, like political correctness, and they would say, "Oh, you know, we don't want to have this PC culture anymore, and we want freedom in in the context of we can say whatever and whatever we are thinking." What would you say to those people who perpetuate violence or hatred or will say bigoted things under the guise of being free? Yeah, that's a problem. Because mm. freedom comes with a, with a responsibility. Mm. And that also has been established. Like, you know, you can have the freedom, but you don't have the freedom to hurt somebody. You don't have the freedom to harm somebody. And so that's why I'm saying you, you have the freedom, but it comes with responsibility. And this is something we have established many years ago where we said we can't say fire in a crowded theater because, you know, there'll be mayhem and people will die. So it comes with responsibility and has to be constrained I think people have forgotten that the freedom is essential, but it comes with responsibility. That's so true. And if you could change one misconception about immigrants in general, so not just Muslim immigrants, immigrants coming to U.S., what would that be? Immigrants are the backbone of entrepreneurship in America. They create small businesses. They create create jobs. They bring new things to America that everybody values. They enhance the cuisine of America. They enhance the culture of America. We absorb so many great things from different things. Where did we get I love from Je- I, I, I love Jeannie? Where did we get Aladdin from? Where, where did we get mm-hmm. these great things that are considered American icons? Mm-hmm. You know, they came from certain lands that have Muslim roots. I mean, I tell people, I said, you know, you eat your Chobani yogurt every morning, you enjoy it, and you don't realize there's an, there's an immigrant behind that. 
who became an entrepreneur, who then created a business in a small town in upstate New York and has employed hundreds and thousands of people. And now you're enjoying a Chobani yogurt. You don't know there's a Muslim immigrant guy behind it, a Turkish mm-hmm. guy. And then you watch, you know, your Dr. Oz every morning. I mean, he's the son of an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Then you sit there and you kick your feet up and you watch Ryan Harris or any of these sports people on television. They're Muslim, they're African-American. Mm-hmm. And then you sit back late night and you watch Dave Chappelle or Hassan Minhaj and there's a Muslim behind that. Steve Jobs. <laughs> Steve Jobs. Immigrant, son of an immigrant. Yeah. Son of an immigrant. Mm. Apple. I mean, YouTube was created by a son of a Turkish immigrant. Mm. I mean, there is so much that immigrants have brought to this country that have created great innovation in this country because they're driven. You see, they're driven. Mm. They want to succeed. They take what America offers them and they create opportunities for not only for themselves but for others because they have to prove themselves. Mm. And this is the genius of America and this is never going to stop. I think that most people who are worried about immigrants are are worried about those elements of immigrants that they feel are a burden to the society. Those are things that can be fixed. Mm. But we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know. Before we end our interview, I would like to ask you some fun questions. We've we've talked about some very serious stuff and now we'll move on to our rapid fire round. Okay. So this will help us understand you better. Reading books or listening to music? Reading books. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? Yogurt. If you could take only three things to a deserted island, what would they be? Well, I'd have to have at least one book. <laughs> <laughs> So I could read it again and again and again. I'd have to have some nourishment, yeah, some food, and I guess water. Hmm. Name three things on your bucket list. You mean what I need to do? Yeah. You know, I have a very big bucket list. <laughs> Just share three things with us and we'll be happy. We'll be content. Travel around mm. the country, hit the 50 states. And get out there and meet as many people as I can. And basically try to get some relaxation for myself. You know, I want to travel I like across the country, go to different states, meet different... Maybe, maybe we, you and I should do this together. Yes. <laughs> I need a partner. If you could have any superpower, what would you want? If I had the superpower... I would want to unite people. Mm. Mm. That's a good one. Your biggest failure? Not being able to be everywhere. Mm. If I could just clone myself. (laughs) Do you think it'll happen maybe, I don't know, 100 years from now? It may, you know, you never know. Yeah. Your biggest achievement? Looking at everything from the glass full. Mm. Always being hopeful. Yeah. Describe yourself in three words. Bold. (laughs) (laughs) Positive. Upbeat. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? And from whom? My father said to me when I was a little girl, look at that mountain. Hmm. If you want, you can climb it. Wow. That's powerful. Your idea of vacation? Sit back and watch a movie. 
uh, your all-time favorite movie? <laughs> I would say Dr. Zhivago. Hmm. Best Kashmiri restaurant in New York City. I mean, is there, there a... There isn't. There isn't one? Oh, my God. Hmm, that's sad. Favorite emoji? I think the one with the smile. Hmm. Pie or cake? Uh, cake. Pancakes or waffles? Neither. Oh, really? I'm gluten-free. So <laughs> <laughs> But if I had to, I would pick the waffle. You would? Yes. I, you know, everybody likes waffles. I it like... has crevices in oh. it. <laughs> oh. You can put things in it. Yeah. Tea or coffee? Tea. Home is? Where the heart is. Yes. Thank you so much, Daisy, for coming to our show and for such an informative discussion around religion, politics, and immigration. I would like to thank all the listeners for joining us today and those who have supported us. Also, if you like what you hear, you can share it with like-minded people. And if you have a story to tell or any new ideas, please contact us at thealienchronicles at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien and you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. You can also find out more about Daisy Khan on her website, which is www.daisykhan.com. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected. <laughs>